Hello and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Matthew Hedges. Matthew is an academic focusing on authoritarian regimes with an emphasis on the monarchies of the Gulf states. He's the author of Reinventing the Sheikhton, Plan, Power, and Patronage in Mohammed bin Zayed's UAE. It's just been published by Hearst. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Thank you very much both for having me. Now we're going to get to your book, which is a major, original, and significant new contribution towards understanding of Mohammed bin Zayed's reshaping the United Arab Emirates to his mold. But first of all, can we talk about what happened to you in the UAE while you were doing research for the book? Sure. So um, it, it, it's, of course, natural to, to, to need to uh, maybe get a little background for, for people that maybe don't know or just to refresh for those that do. While I was undertaking my doctorate at Durham University in the UK, when I was taking, undertaking fieldwork, I travelled to the UAE. I interviewed associates that I had known and worked with in my uh, professional career. And when I tried to leave the country, I was then stopped by Emirati Intelligence Services, or what they called the State Security Department. And I was subsequently held for um, just under seven months. I was tortured. I was held um, in, you know, in solitary confinement isolation for the entire period. And I was then charged with espionage on behalf of the British government. One of the other charges against me was handling secret information, but later this got reduced in court to handling sensitive information. Fundamentally, it wasn't that the my, my, my PhD, or the book in its current form, is a expose. It is simply the, the, the packaging of publicly available information in a manner that, in, in, in their eyes, was extremely sensitive. That period of incarceration, did you get the sense that the people who were interrogating you had any understanding about your book and about your research? What were they basing these uh, allegations, these absurd allegations that you were a spy for the UK, which of course is a great ally of the uh, UAE? What, what did they base these allegations on? So the, the, the public claim is that one of the people that I had interviewed came forward and directed them to investigate me. But, and this is something I think I've said before, this claim is, is, is not true for the sole reason that uh, it, since my return to the UK, it's been discovered that they had hacked my phone and they were watching me uh, from, uh, from before I even entered the country. I had come up on their radar for, you know, whatever reason. And, and you're absolutely right. It was very, it was truly bizarre dealing with the interrogators, dealing with the state security prosecutor, because... When you would try and have a, a like a critical, like analytical conversation, they would, they would ask you a certain question, and then they would ask you another, but the answers don't match in terms of, they 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 you know they under threat of torture and everything else they 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 force you to 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 confess to certain activities, crimes, whatever. But then they would ask you know going going through my family, who's your father, mother, sister, who's your wife. And and my wife is, uh, she's called Daniela, and she she's Colombian. And then they would ask, well, how how can a member of MI six have a foreign wife? They even used evidence such as my master's thesis 
from over 10 years ago, you know, asking why I got all of this secret information from. I said, sir, if you, if you look, it's, it's footnoted and referenced. So if, you, if anyone has gone to university at all, you know, one of the first things that you have to do is, is, is reference your, the material you use to illustrate uh, the evidence. But they didn't seem to even acknowledge, justify, or even consider the fact that this was from a book. He's the state security prosecutor. The investigators said they had PhDs. If they do, then you would really want to question the, the, the policy and process by which they gained it if they don't know what referencing is. You know, it, it's truly, it's truly bizarre. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Indeed, and as you say, everything in the public domain, nothing secret, all, all the research out there available, uh, extraordinary. They, as you say, threat of torture, ill treatment, uh, solitary confinement, they bring you to court, sentence you to life imprisonment. I mean, did you have any proper legal representation? Was the court in any way anything other than a kangaroo court my my knowledge of the of the legal system in the uae is, is pretty um uh, i know some aspects in some areas but i wasn't then held within a, a normal system i was within the state security these intelligence courts across the middle east across the world in, in authoritarian states they're a system within themselves so you know it's the deep state so my wife tried to look for lawyers for me, but because it's state security, there is no case file or number, which means if you were to go and get a lawyer, they don't have any evidence to go and collect. They're not allowed to review the evidence. When they are allowed to view the evidence, if they are informally told, they then have to go and only see the evidence in, in certain premises for, for a very short amount of time and, 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 and so forth. Within the UAE, lawyers who have represented at state security trials before have also been sentenced to jail. And just for, for, for wider context, one of the names that was put to us um, by the British uh, Foreign Office was a lawyer who had on a previous occasion uh, been both the... He had, he'd been leading the case, but he had also represented the defendant. So he was representing both sides. <laughs> Correct. Li quite, quite literally, not, not in a in an informal manner. No, directly. So I, I was later, you know, given a court appointed lawyer. I saw him for less than five minutes the day before my defence. Um, the the legal system is simply there to to justify their actions as opposed to actually get critical engagement. It is, as you say, extraordinary. The Foreign Office advised to families time and again in cases like yours is not to go public, not to make a fuss, leave it to us. You think if that advice had been followed by your wife, Daniela, you'd still be in prison in the UAE? Well, in regards to that question, absolutely I do. By, by following advice and, and, and having it discreet and quiet, it's it has been proven time and time again that it doesn't work. In my own experience, I didn't see anyone. Uh, my, my first meeting with, with the Foreign Office was after nearly two months of interrogations, daily interrogations for nearly 15 hours. So if, 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 if Daniela had, had kept quiet as they, as they said, absolutely I'd still be there. Mm. 
takes a huge amount of courage, both on your part and on, on, on Daniela's, to uh, get to the point where, as a result of a public outcry, once you were convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment, that you were finally released. Mm. Um, look, l- let us now then move on to reinventing the shakedown, in which you make a, a very powerful and cogent argument that the Arab Spring made an indelible mark on the thinking strategy of MBZ. How threatened do you think he felt by the events of 2011? So, it, on the one hand, of course, it's a series of events. Of course, the, the Arab Spring, it was the, it was, a, it was like a behavioral, right? It was a behavioral shift. It was both events going on within each country, from Egypt, Libya, Syria, you know, uh, across the region, but also the external states and how they then viewed their position within the region. So it was not only the 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 event the events of, of certain coups of civil uprisings, which was of course a quite a clear threat to, to to all incumbent actors, but as much it was also the reaction of Washington of President Obama at the time to just sit and watch um, Hosni Mubarak be be overthrown. It was the fact that these longtime allies, supposed allies within the Middle East were being left to, to, to defend themselves against these popular uprisings and then yet be criticised for the human rights abuses that they would, that they would often you know, utilise to try and retain power. So for, for MBZ and, and, and for the UAE, I think they had been able to, to, to modernise and to, to go forward to an extent where they were able to uh, kind of future-proof any immediate and short-term um, struggles. That said, it really did home in and focus attention that the biggest and gravest threat to, to the ruling families really was from internal sources. Any opposition, any uh, independent thought that doesn't mirror, you know, centralized leadership, the tolerance for it is, is getting that windows getting less and less. And I think that that really has been accelerated since 2011. MBZ particularly, though, shaken up by the Muslim Brotherhood and his fears about the extent to which the Brotherhood could affect this internal threat to his uh, his regime? So there is a perception, rightly or wrongly, that the Muslim Brotherhood present a, um, a considerable threat to the stability of, of, of the monarchies of the Gulf. They try to utilize the same religious legitimacy that many of those uh, ruling families would claim, as well as the fact that they're then representing and they have a, a much wider membership than a ruling family has. So you can understand that imbalance and how that can maybe offset feelings of perception, you know, within those within those states. There is I, th- I think it is also important to acknowledge the fact that maybe directly or linked to it, that there are less tolerant aspects within the Muslim Brotherhood that, or linked to it, that can be a pathway towards violent engagement. This is just, just in a general sense. But what the UAE has has learnt from the last 20 years from the, you know, from since 
is that the securitization of threats from the Islamic world can be a, a, a powerful tool in uh, developing sentiment internationally. And so whenever the UAE does something within the region or at home, if it starts to get close to a line of being quite uncomfortable in discussions with its partners, it justifies its actions as part of a counter-terrorist policy. When they go to roll up the, you know, the, the, the UA94, when they, they start to encroach on civilian rights and, and, and domestic policies, this is often worded through the, through the prism of, of counterterrorism, of countering violent extremism. You know, it's, it's that message which they're able to, to harness um, that threat into a, into a strength. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the UAE 94, they, many of the members of Al-Isla, which was a Muslim Brotherhood uh, um, society in the United Arab Emirates, in the book, you discuss the centrality of regime security, which is what you're touching on now, Matt, and that it is at the heart of MBZ's restructuring of how the UAE functions. And we should remind our listeners that the United Arab Emirates was set up as a federal state of seven separate emirates, each with their own ruling families. So can you tell us what you mean by regime security as it's understood by MBZ, who is now, of course, the president, but for many years, the de facto president, and leader of the United Arab Emirates. So regime security is, is the continued presence, it's the continued application, continued working of the political leadership from MBZ's perspective, that is ruling from Abu Dhabi. Now, this is their, their physical protection, but this is also then their continued ability to, to exert their authority and influence. This is is separate from, say, national security, which is the UAE as a whole, and its its defense against an attack from, say, Iran, you know, theoretically an attack from, from Saudi Arabia. State security would be the continued working of the machinery of government, of of the state in its current in its current shape, how that would continue to exist. It's State security would be how how does the federation retain its its identity, you know, moving forward. But regime security really is on how MBZ, his his brothers, how do they maintain the the, the continued authority of of the Al Nahyan, the um, the ruling family, right? How, how do they ensure that they are at the the top of the pyramid, so to say? And, and in the book, you set out three areas where MBZ has methodically strengthened his hand and, and his family's hand. Uh, let's start with the first, military consolidation. Can you talk about that, Matt? Absolutely. So the military as a, as a, as a kinetic force, as a legal owner of, of that coercive element of, of power, they are fundamentally the first tool in which a state has for, for defense. Because of this, they are they often have a, a heightened importance within society, within a state, but also concurrently because of that, they also have traditionally presented one of the most predominant threats to a state, to a regime, to its continued ability to, to exercise its power. Military coups that have happened around the world, 
you know that this is this is where they come from this is their look at egypt look at syria the the amount of times in which they have sought to dictate power dictate terms on on their own and used their ownership of of weapons to to do this now looking much further back they have of course um within the gulf even played an important role in the stability of of monarchs um in saudi arabia in in the uae back in the the 60s in oman with the the darfur wars they have played that sort of role but they have been heavily depoliticized and so the uae armed forces in this case has really been a driver of modernization within the uae most notably because muhammad mbz he he had he he has a career in the armed forces he he was the head of the air force he was the chief of staff and throughout this period you know as the popular phrase is uh, the uae's was coined the little sparta as as is well known we have really seen over the past 10 or 15 years the uae confidently engaging in in international conflicts establishing overseas military bases and this is something that you wouldn't expect from a from a country with a a native population of just over 1 million mbz is is balancing a very delicate line here where he has to have a strong military it has to have a strong armed forces to be able to defend the country against external state actors but doesn't want to strengthen them so much that they could become a potential domestic threat and a, a big theme throughout the book is the networks of personnel that um not owe allegiance directly but but they have a a patronage towards mbz and what we've now seen is over mbz's military career lots of the people that he worked directly with are now in extremely high positions of leadership across the state but as they are starting to come towards the end of their military careers they are now also transitioning into civilian positions and that dynamic is then a is something to look to for the future um what does that then mean for the identity of the state how does governance work when you are led by military figures it kind of perpetuates that that assertive nationalism and i think this seems to be a way this is a, a a power that mbz is trying to tap into for the future and using his background to do this all right the military as you say the network uh, his own background that's very much under his control Let, let's then move on to your next chapter which you've titled digital authoritarianism new tools for state control uh, in broad strokes matt what are the tools and how has mbz used them to reinforce his power sure so looking at digital tools in effect this is surveillance surveillance is is obviously a completely very broad term that that can be that can mean many things in different settings surveillance within the uae it is total here i'm really talking about a, like a political economy of surveillance how are individual behaviors linked and connected into the state's observation all the way down to expensive individual hacking attempts which we've we've seen in the news with pegasus 
we've seen the UAE uh, getting caught hacking members of the House of Lords. We've seen them using and exploiting the, 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 this technical advantage to really strengthen their hand within society. So when I'm talking about these digital tools, these, these new tools of surveillance, it is the laws and legislation that restricts the individual ability, but also expands oversight of the state into people's lives. In the same way that you might have to have an ID card in any country in the UAE, your ID card is linked to your biometrics. It is linked to your passport, to your phone number, to your um, bank accounts. Basically, your life becomes so centralized that every movement, every act that you undertake can be attributed to you. When you then, you know, combine this and you, you process this as part of a wider analytical machine in quite a dystopian manner, the state can quite easily watch and analyze people's day-to-day activities. Every, every, every act that you do is, is, attribut- is attributable to you. I suppose the positive is so far they, they don't have the ability to, to accurately process this on, on such a scale but it could provide the foundation and basis to, you know, like a minority report, to, to be able to kind of predict future crimes um, and to try and get one, one step ahead of those engagements. Because of the, the realm of surveillance and because it's an internal security issue, however, it is extremely difficult to get that information and data to, to really reference and show what is happening. And... This was something that I, I, I consciously uh, thought about when I was writing it, and it was to make sure that everything was public, publicly available information, but that also, because of those limitations, I didn't want to, to start speculating, and I wanted to just work around what was available. And so that's why I then look at, say, the laws and legislation that limit uh, individual actions and enhance the power of the state. In doing so, it kind of, it, it leads to the, the thought that surveillance can be both like a, a reactionary process to, to, you know, to observe activity, but also it can, it can lead to a, like, self-thought. If you know that the state has this power, if you know that the state is, is potentially watching you, how does that then change your behaviour? Does that stop you from thinking a certain thought? Does that stop you from, from speaking about a topic, from, from traveling to a certain area? If they can create that potential threat of, of punishment, if they can make it so vast, if they can elevate their potential power, can that surveillance become positive surveillance as opposed to reactionary? If, if, they, if they make that threat so large, can they quell those actions of individuals? And, you know, the UA is learning, learning from other states, Russia, China, from Israel, and, and saying, yeah, right, it's how, how, how are these states utilizing technology to, to help strengthen their domestic security? And listen, of course, every state will need to use some of these tools at different times, you know, for, for, for legitimate purposes, you know, 
this this also has to be acknowledged. But when you then have such a small native population, when power is concentrated with a ruling family and, and the tribal network that they've established, having this magnifying tool, they can then massively, you know, expand their immediate control and authority over society. So that there are positives, but there are also, um, you know, some extreme negatives here. We've got the military under his control, as you say, the use of surveillance, extraordinarily sophisticated. This goes way beyond 1984. And a very interesting point about how people, in effect, self-censor themselves in fear that this surveillance will catch them out on something they say. Indeed, something they might even think as a, as, as a predictive activity. You look then at the economic side, both diversification of the economy away from dependence on hydrocarbons, and then at how MBZ has created a structure of control. And perhaps he has not been as successful in that department as he has with the other two. The military and surveillance is about the state's ability to, to exercise its power. When I then start looking at the economy and the industry, that's then the process to which the state seeks to maintain its position of power. It's how they then can continue to, to generate funds, how they can continue to, to, to remain independent and operate in, it, in its own manner. Absolutely, it is fundamental to acknowledge the fact that oil has been the, the bedrock, um, mind, mind the pun, but it has, has really been the bedrock of, of the state's economy. It, 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 that, that cannot be ignored. But this is not the, the only part. And there has been some diversification, of course, but really power is still centered around the extrapolation of funds from oil and their, their immediate industries. So political power in the UA would be seen through the Supreme Petroleum Council. And this has traditionally been made up of, you know, very trusted tribal allies, family ties. But because we've been able to see that the members of, of institutions such as these and how they have changed over time, I've been able to, to concurrently, like very clearly illustrate the fact that the changes to those organizations mirror, you know, the ascension of MBZ. And this has been happening for for nearly over what, 10, 10 or 15 years now. They don't want the power to, to move too far away from the oil because it's it's 90, what, 90, 91 or 92%, I think, of the UA's oil is located in Abu Dhabi with, with oil prices skyrocketing. Of course, why why would you why would you want to to move away from this? It's then how they've used that money in the the long term. They've created sovereign wealth funds. Uh, you have ADIA, Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. Think of it as a financial workshop, stocks and shares, investments and companies, but no actual engagement in the running of those companies. This is quiet. This, this relies heavily on expatriates to, to come in and help that run. You would then see organizations such as Mubadla. The Sovereign Wealth Fund. Correct. Where they, they are much more public, they have a uh, an outward profile and, and perception. 
they invest, they develop, but they also act as enablers of human development. They help to provide a, like an upward career for the, for the locals. They are involved in the construction and maintenance of marquee projects. They're not shaping the country per se on maybe genuine needs, but on projects and profiles that are then directly indebted to MBZ. He is the chairman of, of, of Mubadla. He, you know, he's been at the, the heart of this. And so he, he uses these as levers on an economic side, one hand to make money. Some of them are, are, are primarily designed to, to generate more funds, of course. But otherwise, they have a, a more social side of enhancing capabilities in a literal sense within the state, but also for people to, to develop allegiance directly to him, to make sure that there isn't really much that happens within the state that doesn't come directly from him. That, you know, as the title says, Clan Power and Patronage in MBZ's UAE, everything in, in all of the chapters in, in, in the entire study, human networks are, are central to this. So in the economy, you've seen a very distinctive network emerge uh, within Mubadla, for, for example, with Khaldun Mubarak, with Jasmal Zabi, with his eldest son Khalid bin Mohammed bin Zayed, and, and many others where they've been in those companies for, for 15 years. They've worked very closely together. They've been part of the UAE's foreign policy in a discreet manner. But now they are at the very top of public state governance within the UAE. And even you can see straight off the Arab Spring, there were changes at the board level of, of some of these political economic institutions. But then about seven years ago, Mohammed bin Zayed, you know, removed the, the allies of, of Sheikh Khalifa from many of these boards. Khalifa was the president. He suffered a stroke in 2014, the half-brother of uh, MBZ. Correct. And he died in May of this year. MBZ is... He started putting in his, his deputies and replacing Khalifa's sons with his own. And you, you could have seen, you know, the, the succession that, that's happened in the UAE that this last year. This, in reality, occurred in 2014 after uh, Khalifa's stroke. But uh, again, uh, we think about how carefully he has structured, methodically structured things from, as you point out, quite a long time back. And I, and I believe it was uh, Barack Obama who called MBZ the shrewdest and toughest MENA leader he had encountered. W would you share that assessment, Matt? I think within the, the Middle East region, the, the, there is a degree of truth to this. I, I would also maybe say that by fixing him within the MENA region, look at some of the governance of, of, of some leaders, it's not a very high bar, um, sadly. He does also have the ability to lean on a much, you know, deeper fund. You know, he has had that ability, but he has enjoyed working in the shadows on the side. He, he has enjoyed doing things discreetly because that gives him a degree of flexibility. That's why he implemented these changes nearly 10 years ago when he had that political cover to do so. When he was to eventually become head of state this year, he would not have that same practical 
uh, ability to, 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 you know, to change, to move, to balance different requirements, to, to be able to look at things in such detail. But when you are that certain mindset as well, that does bring with you a degree of inflexibility. MBZ is known to be quite uh, stubborn and a little bit inflexible. Mm-hmm. I think the, the issue too, of course, is peak oil is coming. We're not sure when it will finally arrive, but that dependence on oil that need to diversify, perhaps he hasn't gotten as, as far as uh, he needs to get. But, but what finally, Matt, are his overarching ambitions? I mean, does he want to be seen as the de facto leader of the Arab world or, or do you think he's happy to leave that to others like Mohammed bin Salman? He has he happily enjoyed not playing, I wouldn't say second fiddle, but does MBZ want to be the leader of the, the Arab world? I'm not sure he does, but they certainly want their policy, their strategic overview to be a leading fe- uh, feature of the future. And I think, sadly, that there's growing evidence, there's a growing position that's harder to refute within the Middle East, which is the UA wants to try and profess a Islamically conservative, socially liberal, but also apolitical society. This brings with it a, a degree of stability. And, you know, by comparison, you would say, look at what happens in the US, look at what happens in Europe, the, the chaos that, in, that, that has been happening. They can't be trusted in the long term, our, our relations, we, we are not being respected for our contribution to the to these areas and you come to us when when things get too expensive for you with your handout you can understand why this argument is is developing more and more why is democracy why are human rights not a you know the first thing on the agenda within the region then they'll say well who who are you in washington who are you in london in in paris germany to, to lecture us on democracy and human rights, look at the chaos that that, that, that has given you. And, and, and so that vision that MBZ is, is, is pushing, it, it's had some issues, but it, it is, I believe, uh, gaining ground. Well, Matt, it's a, it's a model that isn't good for human rights, works for stability and, and security. For now, we'll have to see down the road how that, uh, how that plays out. But your book uh, gives a very thorough assessment of just how Mohammed bin Zayed has built his power base and how successful he's been at it. The book is called Reinventing the Sheikdom, Clan, Power and Patronage in Mohammed bin Zayed's UAE. And I recommend it very highly. Matt, thanks so much. Oh, Bill? Absolutely no worries. It's um, it's been good to to engage with you and to talk. And you know, thank you very much for for having me on here to talk about it. Well, I'm sure we'll have you back again because uh, MBZ is is a figure that uh, has a great deal of power and growing prominence within uh, the Gulf and the and the wider Middle East. So so thanks again, Matt. Uh, no problem, Bill. Thank you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Matthew Hedges author of Reinventing the Sheikdom. We welcome your comments. Since we launched our podcast in 2020, it's been listened to nearly 80,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all our listeners. 
And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon Music. In addition to our podcasts, the Arab Digest daily newsletter features the very best of mean analysts, analysts like Matthew. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period is ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.